The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So in our text this morning, we have a wonderful opportunity to examine our hearts. We have a wonderful opportunity to take our hearts and put it underneath the examination light of the Word of God. And what I really pray for is honesty. Your answers will not affect me, and who I am should not affect your answers. I cannot answer for you, and you cannot answer for me. So what I pray for as we go through our text, that we will be honest. It's always, it's good every once in a while, right, to check your devotion to Jesus. Every once in a while, you should stop, check in with your heart, and see how it's doing. Um, We should ask ourselves questions like this. Do you still believe, talking to myself, do you still believe that Jesus Christ is worthy to follow? Do you still believe he is worthy enough to be totally devoted to? Do you still believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of your submission and obedience? Is he the source of your joy? Is he the source for your rest? Is he the one you hope for who would give you righteousness before God? I mean, we don't have many options to how we respond, right? Either we believe he is or we reject it. We either submit to him or we rebel against him. We either have a desire to become devoted to him or a desire to destroy him. In our text today, we're going to see there's no gray areas with Jesus. In fact, the gray area is the most dangerous spot to be in. It's either you're devoted to him or you're not. But what I pray for, this is what my prayer was this whole time preparing, that we will all see the compassion of Jesus Christ. That you would not find it terrifying to approach him but that you would find him to be humble, you would find him to be compassionate and kind and forgiving. And I pray that you would come. And for those who are devoted to and following in Jesus and find him to be the source of their joy, I pray that this text will strengthen that joy even more. Okay? Last week, we saw Jesus at a dinner party. And he was hanging out, and he was reclining at table, and it was a fancy dinner party because the one who threw it was very rich. He was a tax collector, and he, was, and he invited his tax collector friends and sinners to be with him. And we saw Jesus there available to them, available to them. And we also met last week uh, a group of characters, the Pharisees, who were self-righteous, and they were kind of bothered that this rabbi is making himself available with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees believed that in order for me to have salvation, I need to separate myself from sinners and sin. For me to have righteousness before God, I must work the law to such an extent, I need to separate myself from sinners and tax collectors. 
And so they asked the question, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Phil had this amazing line last week, right? Self-righteous people are always outraged by grace. What a great line. So Jesus says to them in verse 17 in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's not right for a doctor to just hang out with other doctors who are not sick. They don't actually do anything. And he furthers it. Jesus is not interested in people who have it all put together. Jesus did not come in to call the righteous. He's not interested in helping those who find no need for him. He's actually interested in those who actually feel a need for him, who actually recognize they need him. That's the person Jesus is calling to be his disciples. And that's what he told them. And so today we're going to have, we're going to see what happens when self-righteousness interacts with the most, self, the most righteous person in the universe. What happens when you have a person with a self-righteous heart and they interact with the most righteous person in the universe? And we are going to have three examples. And we're going to use those examples in a negative sense. How not to respond to Jesus. What we're really answering is, who who really are the righteous and sinners? And Mark thinks, let me bring up the most righteous people in our day, the Pharisees. That's where we find ourselves. So we're going to see three examples from verses 18 to 22. We're going to see a self-righteous heart makes self the source of joy instead of Jesus. A self-righteous heart makes self the source of joy instead of Jesus. Then we will see in verses 23 to 28, a self-righteous heart misuses God's word to find fault in others and ignores their own. A self-righteous heart will misuse God's word to find fault in others but ignores their own. And then we will see from chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a self-righteous heart cannot and will not submit to God. A self-righteous heart cannot and will not submit to God. Again, we are putting these up as examples, as a mirror, as don't be like this. May we find Jesus to be the source of our joy. May we be devoted to his word and find the heart of God in it and be compassionate to others. May we be humble to follow him to acknowledge his authority over us. So the scene is continuing from that dinner party. Here we are in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Fasting is a religious activity where you would temporarily restrict a physical need to increase your spiritual growth, seeking the presence of God. So you want to grow more in your relationship with Jesus? You want to grow more in your relationship with God? You would restrict a physical need. It could be food, and it could be anything, really. And you would seek God's presence. Now, in Jesus' day, this was a common practice for religious people. When you're fasting, you're telling everyone that you're seeking God's presence. You're telling everyone that you're seeking God's presence. And you remember Jesus called this out. He says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. 
who disfigure their faces and wants to make it known that they're fasting. In fact, wash your face, anoint your head with oil, because God who sees in secret will reward you. If you're seeking the approval of others, you'll get it. People will be like, wow, you're really seeking God's presence. And so this is what the Pharisees liked. They made all their decisions based on how people will look at them. They would make all their decisions based on how people would look at them. Well, we have John's disciples, and this is John the Baptist. And they were fasting for a different reason. They were fasting because either, there's two reasons. One, uh, repentance from sin. So they're going for purity. They're, they're stopping the flesh, okay? And so they weren't eating, and they were fasting. They were engaged in fasting at this time. And the second reason is because it's most likely that just a few verse, a chapter earlier, John is in prison, and so they're grieving over the rabbi. They don't have their rabbi with them. However, both those groups, even though they have theological differences, are both engaged in religious activity. And the question comes up, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're trying to mark Jesus as a bad leader. Your students are not pursuing righteousness. Why is that? Look at Jesus' response, and I, this is great. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Let's just stop right there. They're not at a wedding. Remember, they're at Levi's house having a fancy meal. However, Jesus brings up this picture of one of the most biggest celebrations in that culture. A wedding doesn't last half a day. It doesn't last a whole day. It would last about a week of celebration for a wedding. You could just imagine, right? You're trying to marry one of your children, and you lay out the table, and all the food is there, and then you invite some guests, and they come and say, oh, we're not going to eat, we're fasting. It's like unheard of at that time. That's insulting. So what Jesus is trying to do here, he's telling them there is a time and place to fast, but not right now. But he calls himself the bridegroom. That is very interesting. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom title was never given to the Messiah. Do you know who gets the title of the bridegroom of Israel? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 25, and we'll see. Who, who's the husband of Israel? Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8. For your maker is your what? Husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. So who is the bridegroom of Israel? God. God. And so in a sense, what he's saying, my disciples don't need to seek God's presence. Why? God is with them. God, they, they're celebrating now. 
What they are tasting right now is this future event where this table is laid out and God has made all the food and the marriage feast of the Lamb and the church. And it's a huge celebration. But right now they're getting a picture of it. You cannot go up to them and say fast. There's no power in them to do that. They're rejoicing. Look at how John the Baptist talks about this in John chapter 3, verse 29 through 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. The wedding is not about the wedding guests. What is the wedding about? The bridegroom and the bride. The disciples are able to celebrate because the celebration is not about them, but about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Their joy comes from Christ. The Pharisees get their joy for performing well. The self-righteous person gets joy when they perform well, when they have a set of rules that they follow and they actually can do it. They're like, wow, look at me, check mark, check mark, check mark. I am advancing in my sanctification. Woo. And if they don't do well, they're miserable. <laughs> Their joy comes from self. But with this big, beautiful celebration, Jesus casts a shadow. Look what it says in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Why did Jesus cast this shadow? How is it that this celebration can happen simultaneously with this idea that Jesus is going to be taken away? How? This is not taken away so he could be with the bride and then they're sad that he's not hanging out with them anymore. This taken away is a snatched away. They're going to come and take Jesus away from, from them. I'm not always going to be here. I will be gone. This is pointing to the cross. This is how God is going to bring in the new covenant. When Jesus Christ comes and he dies on the cross on our behalf, God is able to bring in the new covenant. But in order for God to bring that, Jesus has to die. He has to fulfill the law. He has to show that he is righteous. But then he dies for unrighteous people in their place so that God can deal with humans on a faith and grace basis, not a law and works basis. They believe, the Pharisees believe, to please God, I must keep the whole law. For God to even consider me to be right, I must follow all the rules. And what we will see later is that they added so many rules, they squashed the law of God to show themselves to be more righteous, but that's later. But Jesus is coming, he's saying no, to be righteous. Remember, he's coming to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And that good news is God now will make you righteous on the basis of your faith. Not how much faith you have, but who you put your faith in. 
That's how God is going to deal with you now. If your faith is in yourself, God, has, God will condemn you. But if your faith is placed in Christ, you're counted righteous. And so Jesus furthers this idea, and he brings two illustrations to show how my disciples who are with God right now cannot fast because I'm here in their presence. Look at these two examples he brings up. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Hey, Pharisees, hey, self-righteous people, what I am bringing in is new, and you cannot, in your old system, will not be able to support what I'm bringing. You're going to make a bigger mess because I'm bringing in grace and you want to keep the law. A worse terror is going to be made. This is like the book of Hebrews condensed in one illustration. Remember, when Jesus came, the old covenant, what? Vanished. It's put away. It's done. It's been fulfilled. It's done. Now there's a new covenant and it's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, you cannot, you cannot put what I'm bringing on that old covenant. It's done. Look at this. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the old days, glass and ceramic are expensive. So to carry around water or wine, you would take an animal, prepare him, sew up the leg holes, Prepare the skin, you put in the wine. And when you put in the wine, it starts to ferment. It starts to make the skin bloat. You use it. It's already expanded to its max. Now, if you were to put new wine into that again, what's going to happen? Boom! Now you got a big mess. You destroyed the wine. You destroyed the skin. Oh, man. What is he saying? Same idea. You cannot take what I'm bringing and place it into your system. I'm bringing in faith and grace. Your law and works has never worked. And that's what he's saying. So we, you know, the self-righteous, they depend a lot on their efforts because they want to be right with God. You can't blame them. I mean, this has been thousands of years, right? Going throughout the Old Testament to Jesus' time, this is their tradition. This is how they held themselves. This is what they thought. And Jesus basically is coming and saying, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Do not trust in yourself. No, trust in me. All right, so now number two, the self-righteous heart misuses God's word to find fault in others and ignores their own. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What's so fascinating about this is that God actually has a law for them to do this. This is an actual permissible law. If you go through your neighbor's grain field, you're allowed to pick off the grain and eat it. What they did, the Pharisees, 
they added so much more laws. For instance, you cannot walk more than 3,000 steps. Cannot. Uh, you cannot write down more than two letters. Not letters like dear, whoever. No, letters. A, B. It's too many. You have to race one. <laughs> and so, so over here, they took that the disciples being hungry as reaping, threshing, preparing, and eating. They're saying, ah, you broke, you broke the Sabbath. It's not lawful. See, Jesus, you're a bad leader. Look at what you're doing to your disciples. In fact, in Luke's gospel, they, they say to Jesus too, why are you breaking the law? And Jesus is amazing. Look what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read? Just, I mean, these guys were experts in the law. If you had a question, they're going to answer it. You would look at them as the scholars of the day. They had it memorized. They are the ones who read it. Have you never read? Oh, here we go. Look at what Jesus responds with. You think this is bad? You think my disciples picking up grain and eating it is bad on the Sabbath? Have you never read what David did? David is your guy. The Pharisees love, I mean, the Jewish people love David. It was the king who was after God's own heart. And there, here's the story that Jesus brings up. When he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now that's true. It was unlawful for anyone to eat the bread except for the priests. So you're upset with me feeding my disciples grain, yet your guy, David, who you think is the best, he broke the actual law. But it's further than that. It's more than that. What is it? God did not get mad at David in that story. God did not punish David and his friends for eating the bread. You know who got mad at David and the priest? King Saul, the bad guy of the story. He's saying, you guys are acting like King Saul. You don't actually know the heart of the Bible. You're misusing it. Not only that, they're walking through grain fields. You guys are following us. You're walking more than what you said was allowed to do. <laughs> hey, it's not us, it's you. It's you. Self-righteous hearts misuse God's word to find fault in others and ignores their own. But that's not it. Jesus takes, Jesus takes this way high. Two more verses. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys work so hard not to work. You took God's blessing of rest and reflection and you turned it into a day of burden. You took God's gift for you to sit back and honor God and to remember his glory and to celebrate and rest from your work. You took that to a burden, a day to be filled with anxiety, 
a day to have a long list of things you're supposed to not do. You, you totally missed, you totally got it wrong. And it's so amazing that Jesus can tell him, tell them what the Sabbath was actually made for. Why? Because he's the one that made it. Look at what he says in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There are a few phrases in the Old Testament that are unspeakable. You cannot say Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. That was reserved, that was holy. But you also couldn't apply the Son of Man title to anyone. Look at what it says in Daniel Chapter 7, verses 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. And so Jesus takes that title and applies it to himself here. He just stripped away their source of feeling righteous. That day was a really popular day for them because they were walking around and making sure everyone was following the rules. Right? They added so many rules. They diluted God's word. They, they, they probably thought, wow, God, it, God's law is not good enough. I need to add more to it just to make sure we follow it to the T. And they misused it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am Lord over the Sabbath. You don't tell me what to do. You don't put me underneath your traditions. I don't follow your law. You must follow my law, is what Jesus is saying to them. Wow. These guys wanted to crush people. See, the, the story with David, what, what, why did God allow that? Because it was a ceremonial law, but God cares more about compassion than he cares about sacrifice. God cares more about you showing compassion over your ceremonial law, over the ceremonial law that he gave. That's why he didn't punish David and the priest. And so that's why Saul find fault to go and try to kill the priest. So two times, Jesus is declaring to be God and more righteous than them. And these guys hate it. It's, it's becoming so hard for them. Look what it happens in our last portion, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. A self-righteous heart cannot and will not submit to God. A self-righteous heart cannot and will not submit to God. Again, he entered the synagogue. This could have been on the same day in the grain fields, and they went into the synagogue, and it could be the next following week. 
but it's not more than that. I mean, it's very close together. All three gospel accounts makes these two stories very close. I like to think it's the same day because of what happens. And a man was there with a withered hand. The, his hand lost functionality, and he cannot use it. It's dried up like a dry plant would be dried up. His hand is unusable. However, he's at the synagogue. He came to church. That's amazing. Look at this guy. He's just sitting there. And they watched Jesus. Oh, here we go. To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. There are no laws against healing. Why? No one can heal. Who can actually heal? God can heal. They want to accuse God? Yeah, they're trying to put healing under the category of helping. They want to accuse Jesus. This word accuse is to make a legal complaint against Jesus. I mean, they want to take this to court. You broke the Sabbath by restoring this guy's hand. So he, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. No one needs to explain to Jesus what's going on in their hearts or ours. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, now listen to this question. Pretend you're the Pharisees for a second. And you have all the answers. And you get to dictate laws and traditions. And you're the final authority on how people live. Now listen to this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath? I mean, Jesus is asking them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath, according to you guys, to do good or to do harm? The word there is evil. To save life or to kill? And the room is silent, and they're all looking at Jesus. I mean, uh, the Pharisees. What are you guys going to say? If the Pharisees say, no, 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 it's lawful to do good, what are they admitting to? They're wrong. And Jesus is right. And if he's right, we should be devoted to him. And if he's right, that means I'm wrong. That means my credit, my status, my place in society goes down too because I was wrong this whole time. Can't say that. What's the other option? To do evil? Can I say that it is lawful to do evil? Oh, the people will hate us. That will show us that we don't know the law. It would show us exposed and bankrupt of all knowledge. It would show us exposed and bankrupt of all righteousness because I would say it's lawful to do evil. What am I going to say? Here comes the gray area. This is the gray area I was talking about. But they were what? Silent. They cannot say anything. They're locked in a logical contradiction in their brain. I mean, they can't go one step to the left, one step to the right, so they just stood there. And you know, Jesus calls sinners to come to him. And some people hang on to their own traditions. They hang on to their own life. And they cannot let it go and follow him. But they know that they should. 
or it makes sense to go, but they just cannot do it. That's the self-righteous heart. I'm not going to give an answer, the self-righteous heart. I'm going to just stay here. I enjoy the show. I get what I'm supposed to do, but I really can't do it, and I'm just in this gray area. That's the most dangerous spot to be in. I'll tell you why. Jesus is willing to put up with people who are vocal about him. This whole time, he was being blamed for things, and he was working with them. He's definitely accepting of sinners to come follow him, and he is compassionate and kind. But look what happens. Look at Jesus's. This is the only place in the Bible where the Bible tells us Jesus was angry, by the way. When he flipped over the tables in the temple, it never says that he was angry. He was. I mean, you could tell, like, wow, that's a lot of zeal. But here, specifically, states, uh, Mark is stating Jesus was angry. Look at this. He looked around with them with anger. His patience ran out. Jesus' arms are not always going to be open. He's not. He's not going to deal with people staying in the gray area. You have to make a choice. Are you going to be devoted to me or will you reject me? And that's where the grieving comes in. You know why Jesus is grieving? He knows the condemnation that's going to follow them for not following him. That's why he's angry, but that's why he's grieved. Look at your callousness. You care so much about what you look like, you cannot show compassion to this guy. Before we go on with this story, let's jump into 1 Kings, because there's only one other story that I found that has a man with a withered hand. This is a fantastic story. Before that goes up there, let me just explain. Um, Jeroboam was a king, and he wanted to build altars to other gods. Okay? And in this text, in the story of 1 Kings, there's a man of God who is coming to, to declare a curse on the altar, to declare, to declare judgment. And the title of that person is Man of God. Man of God came. And he's declaring this judgment on the altars. And Jeroboam gets so freaked out, and he wants to stop him. He stretched out his hand and says, seize him. And as he did, his hand withered. Let's go to the text now. Yeah, and when the king heard the saying, the man of God, of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw back to himself. Okay, we get that, okay? The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So what the man is declaring is going to come true. Look at what Jeroboam says. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated Yahweh. He, he begged Yahweh. And the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Let's go back to our story. There's a man here with a withered hand. 
Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. What's the difference between the two stories? In the Old Testament, the man of God entreated Yahweh. Jesus doesn't entreat Yahweh. He acts as Yahweh. The Pharisees should have been blasted away. I mean, they should have been, we know the scriptures. We just saw him do only what Yahweh can do. We need to repent. What happens? The Pharisees went out and immediately followed him? No. <laughs> what? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, or sorry, Herodians against Jesus. How? To destroy him. It's not to kill. It's to destroy. The same word Mark's use of the demons. Jesus, are you here to destroy us? The same word is used here. They didn't want to just kill Jesus. They wanted to undo his whole ministry. They will not rest until Jesus is killed. They cannot. They love themselves too much. They love themselves too much. They love their positions too much. They love their traditions too much. They cannot and will not submit to Jesus, even though he proved to be Yahweh. So I ask, it's good to check in on our hearts. Ask ourselves over and over again, how are you doing there on devotion? Do you still find him worthy to follow? Do you see him as being compassionate? Do you see him being kind? Is he bringing you joy? Did he bring peace to your life? Is he still there? It's good to check. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So we saw these bad examples. A self-righteous heart makes self the source of joy instead of Jesus. So I pray that we would find Jesus to be the source of joy for our lives. A self-righteous heart misuses God's word and, uh, to find fault in others and ignores their own. And I pray that we would be devoted to the word of God and careful how we use it to get to the heart of it. What's the heart of the word of God? Show compassion. Be kind. Follow Jesus. Look at yourself first before you look at others. And finally, a self-righteous heart cannot and will not submit to God. You, we have to make a choice. Our friends have to make a choice. Our family members have to make a choice. They're either devoted or they'll be condemned. There is no gray area with Christ. He's shown himself. He has come. He's proven it. They don't need evidence, by the way. They got in all the evidence. And Jesus met them at every level. But the self-righteous, the person who cares more about themselves, about what they've done in their life to please God, they cannot follow Jesus. It's impossible. And Jesus did not come to call those people who are self-righteous. He came to call sinners, those who look at their hearts as broken and exposed and hurt. Jesus is saying, come to me. I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'll declare you to be righteous. I'm going to give you my righteousness. You give me all your brokenness. This is what we have in Christ. And so I pray that these truths will be planted deep in our hearts and that we will grow in our love and devotion to Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we have your word. We have your word to study. We have your word to grow in. We have your word to follow. We thank you that we're serving a living God. And he has come to take away our sins and to bring in this wonderful new covenant that any one of us, by, by faith in who you are, will be counted righteous, will be counted right with you, the true righteous ones. The true righteous ones are the ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Oh, may we find him to be so desirable. Oh, may we follow him to the ends of the earth. May we never let go of him. May he always be the source of joy for our hearts. We thank you so much for speaking to us today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.